Most of us have been taught to remove tension from our communication. And what I mean is, is we, we read a passage of scripture and, and there's something that causes confusion or something that's hard to believe or something that doesn't make sense or something that I might be skeptical of. And we have been taught that our job is to explain all of that away. Yeah. And what that does is it removes the tension. Right. Well, here's what happens. If I remove all the tension, there's no reason for them to lean in. There's no reason for them to wrestle with it. There's no really no room for the Holy Spirit to do the work that only He can do because I'm telling you what the Holy Spirit wants you to know because I'm going to explain all this away and remove all the tension. Welcome to the Preaching Donkey Podcast, a weekly show where we explore how to preach life-changing messages. I'm your host, Lane Sebring, and I'm so excited to bring you inspiring and helpful conversations with amazing pastors and church leaders, all designed to help you take your preaching and leadership to the next level. And now, let's dive right in. Welcome to episode 17 of the Preaching Donkey podcast. I am your humble host, Lane Sebring. It's so awesome to have you joining me today. If you're watching on YouTube, welcome. Be sure to subscribe, give this video a like, and leave a comment below. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, any of those, so awesome to have you. Go over to Apple Podcast, leave a review, let me know what you think about the show. Today, I have a really exciting guest on the show, Rodney Arnold, who is actually the lead pastor at my church, One Life Church, is going to be on the show today. Now, let me tell you about the history that I have with Rodney. I actually came on staff at One Life back in 2017 to be the executive pastor. Part of the reason why I moved my family from D.C., left the church that I was pastoring there, I was on staff as a pastor there, left that and came to One Life, came to Knoxville, Tennessee, was because of Rodney and his leadership. And you're going to see why when I interview him. This is a really impactful interview, and he is just a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and skill when it comes to communicating and church leadership and church planting. So we're going to get into all of those things in this interview, and it's going to be really, really great. It just was fun to have him on the show because he is my pastor. I stepped away from church leadership and church staff work to do what I'm doing full-time, working with pastors through Preaching Donkey, coaching, consulting churches. So this is what I do full-time. So I still speak and preach a lot at different churches and at One Life, but I am no longer on staff. And so for the first time in 16 years, I am not a staff church person, but spent three years on staff there with him and still involved on the leadership team. And so it was just an honor to have him on the show to talk about the way he prepares sermons, the way he went through the, the process of planting his church, and how he develops other communicators. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. It's really, really fun. There's a lot packed in. So without any further delay, let's go to the interview with Rodney Arnold. Rodney Arnold, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Can you tell a little bit about your history and kind of how you got into ministry and where you are now? Yeah, man. Well, so my ministry journey really started when I was a kid. Um, when I was about 13, 14 years old, I was a part of a, a small independent Baptist church up in the mountains of southwestern Virginia. And uh, a friend of mine and I, who happened to be four years older than me, just felt like, hey, we should we should start churches like that. You grew up in a similar church. Mm -hmm. Youth ministry was birth to 18. And so we need to start youth ministry. And so 
we just began to meet in the basement of our, our little church with four or five kids. And, and just I implemented things that I had just learned being part of a church plant in Raleigh, North Carolina. I didn't know it was a church plant as a kid, but just the things that I saw that church do with the kids ministry. And, and uh, we saw that thing really grow to about 80 kids. So we would have more, we would have four times as many kids in the basement of the church on Wednesday nights than we'd had upstairs. And that really, what I didn't know was God was really planting the seed of, and really kind of the, the, the addiction almost to seeing people's lives change and multiplication happen and really church planting. I didn't know that, but, but really that. And so then in college, I got involved in, um, uh, a ministry at the University of Tennessee where um, and they just did a great job really preparing college students to be the next generation of, of pastors and of missionaries and of, of leaders and, um, and got to experience uh, what it was like to be a worship leader, preach my first kind of sermon, went on my first mission trip. And, and during that, got on staff at a little church that a, a young pastor was transitioning from a traditional church of 25, 30 people and trying to trying to do some creative things and reach the community. And I ended up spending uh, six or seven years at that church. Saw it grow from 25, 30 people to a couple hundred. And and we began to feel this dream of what if this church planted churches? Mm. And so... Um, so we, we, I remember the moment when I felt like I'm supposed to plan a church. I thought I'd be a worship leader, Michael W. Smith style for the rest of my life. I'd just be there leading worship. And uh, I remember talking to him and saying, I feel like I'm supposed to plan a church. And so long story short, that church and two others in our city kind of, kind of took me in and, and developed a team of guys. I mean, I was 25, 26 years old and, um, I got to go through a two year process of having some mentors and church plants of different ages, different styles, different sizes that really poured into me and gave me an opportunity to, to be on their staff and to learn from them. And then we planted our church um, almost 11 years ago, which is which is really crazy for, for me to think about, or 12 years ago, almost 12 years ago. And uh, and that's just kind of the, the journey that I was on and, and been able to just kind of ride that for the last, the last dozen years or so. You know, one of the things that about your story that I think a lot of pastors can relate to is that you actually left a different yeah. career and trajectory. Yeah, that's true. Can left you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so really throughout college, my dream was to to work in public relations and in NASCAR, kind of a crazy kind of niche. But um, uh, grew up in a family. We had family friends who owned, a, a, at the time, a Winston Cup race team in Abingdon, Virginia. And um, so I just grew up around that. And I always loved writing and advertising and communications. And so I got a degree in public relations and began working even in college. I got an internship there and so then got a full-time job. I was um, really, really fortunate, really blessed. And um, kind of at the time, it was crazy. I was, as far as we knew at the time, the youngest public relations practitioner in, in the NASCAR industry um, working wow. for a track. And that, that was what I thought I would do for the rest of my life at that time was I'll just do that. And, um, and I'll, I'll serve in the local church. And so I was leading worship on, on the weekends at the same church I was in in college. And then just but got to a crisis of faith point where I realized as, as much as I learned in the NASCAR setting, and as much as I loved it, and they did a great, I learned so much about casting vision and creating culture because they did a great job at, at the place that I worked. But at the end of the day, my job was to sell tickets to make money for somebody else. And yeah. uh, and, and just where I was, I mean, that, that can be fun. That can be a great mission field. I see that now. And um, but, but I felt called to, that's not what I'm supposed to give my life to. And so uh, I did, I made that kind of crisis of faith moment where I said, you know what, I can't believe I'm going to walk away from this, but this is, this is really what God's pushing me to do. And so there again, I thought I was, that was going to be to go be the worship leader of this quickly growing replant that I was a part of. Uh, but a few years after that, God would 
kind of lay the church planting thing on my heart. Wow. So so you go from promising career, all the security that yeah. comes with that, upward mobility. Living with my parents, so no bills with the promising <laughs> career. So That's like dual income, it no was. kids. It was kind great. Of it was great. And then you, you go and you plant one life, mm-hmm. and we'll talk more about that in a, in a few minutes. But So what was that like? Because I know there might be younger yeah. guys or gals watching that are like, I'm really wrestling with, should I do it? What's on the other side of me following my calling? Yeah. So can you speak to that? Well, you know, I heard Charles Stanley, Andy's dad, you know, uh, say something um, at a conference not long after all this transpired that maybe will help some folks out. And he talked about, and apparently this has been something he's, he's preached about in his ministry a long time, but that our job as Christ followers, but especially as leaders, is to do what God tells us to do and trust him with the consequences. Hmm. And, and I really had to learn that because here's what happens in that moment is you're completely at the mercy of the Father, the Jehovah Jireh, the provider. And so I'll never forget my last day there. I literally got down on the floor of my office, made my desk chair at Bristol Motor Speedway an altar, and I just prayed, God, this makes no sense, but I'm gonna have to trust you. And literally that's what that, that process was like. And I'll tell you what's important about that is that was the exact same experience I had to have when I felt called to plant a church. Because when you leave a, leave a church, that's no different than leaving a career because you leave a church that has people and buildings and salaries and, and, and the security of all that. And you go, I'm now going to go with me and 12 people to my living room and that's going to be sink or swim. Yeah. I was newly married. And so both of those experiences really pushed me and will, will push you to the place where to, to answer your question, you have to be willing to take the risk. And, and that's one of the things you and I have discussed that, that's, that's frustrating to me as I coach pastors and, and leaders of all ages, whether they're young or not, is, is we're oftentimes only willing to go part of the way in or 75 or 80% of the way in. But man, it requires, when Jesus, the, the, the Greek word in, in the New Testament, more often than not for faith is pistis, which is an all in. We are, I joke about this at One Life, you know, we are pistising in these chairs right now, <laughs> which right. doesn't sound great. But I mean, my feet are not on the ground. I am 100% relying on this chair to hold me up. Mm-hmm. There's I, my feet, if, if this chair breaks, I'm, I'm doomed. That's what you have to be willing to do when God places a calling on your life is to say, this does not make sense on paper. And in my case, to be quite frank, when I left the NASCAR world, I did not have support from family. I did not have the support from friends because it did not make sense. I mean, that makes no sense. You can, I even remember family members saying, you can, you can still keep your job. You can still keep your career and, and work at your church. I mean, you can still do that on Sundays, can't you? And, and, and I had to be willing to say, no, that would not be putting my pistis, my, my all in faith in what God's calling in. That, that would be, 50% or 80% of the way there. And I'm so thankful for that as well because leading the church, especially a new church, I was 26 years old when we planted. So that means no bank is gonna give you a second look. <laughs> Most people aren't gonna give you a second look. I would had to be 100% fully reliant on God. There was, there was no option except to say, God, I'm gonna trust you on this. I, I had, so if, if you, it's, it's really like the, the Jesus taught, the coin is in the fish's mouth. I'm gonna to have to reach people that you are going to you know, inspire and lead, Father, to support this thing or my family doesn't eat, which at the time was me, my wife, and a dog. But you know, this doesn't work unless I completely trust you. And, and I think that's so important because I see so many churches and leaders willing to take 
a step towards what God's calling them to do, but they're not willing to just jump into the deep end. Mm. And sometimes we just got, and I'll tell you this last little thing if I'm talking too much, you tell no, me. No, great. But I'll never forget, I met with um, the associate director of that campus ministry right before I would plant the church. And I was sharing with her kind of this tension that I was having is I thought I'd be a worship leader for the rest of my life. I thought I was going to work in NASCAR. I thought I was going to be the president of a, of a track or I was going to be traveling the country every weekend doing that. And I remember her looking at me and saying, it sounds to me like God's going to push you to plant a church. And I hmm. said, well, why do you think that? She said, well, she had little girls at the time. She said, well, my little girl Lilia is in swimming lessons right now. And her swimming instructor knew that she could swim. But as long as she was in the shallow end where she could kind of, you know how kids will bounce with their tippy toes. As long yeah. as she could sink down enough to push up, she was, she was never going to learn to swim. She said, so the swim instructor came and asked me permission to do what she did, which was she did, as, as you've seen or heard, she carried my daughter to the end of the diving board and dropped her in the deep end because that was the only way she was ever going to learn that she could swim. And she said, I think God's about to drop you in the deep end wow. to show you that this is what you not only can do, but what you should do. And that's what I have found God wants to do with us. He wants to drop us in the deep end, but we want to be in the shallow end where if this doesn't work, I can still push up off the bottom. And right. God is saying, no, I want to drop you in the deep end where you can see I'm your lifeguard. I'll save you, but I've given you what you need to swim, You, but you'll never know it until you jump all the way in. And, and I just think that's what is so important. It's important for us to teach the people that we preach to every week or that we're leading in our multiplication or discipleship cultures that... Hey, this, this all in with Jesus really is getting dropped in the deep end, knowing your lifeguard's watching you if, if, if you begin to drown, but he's given you what you need to swim. And so we have to model that. We have to model that in the way we lead our churches, the way we preach. We have to model that in the way we lead our staff, the way we lead our family, that I'm willing to jump in the deep end if that's what God calls me to do, even if it looks crazy. Yeah. Well, and thank God you did because... One life, and we'll, we'll talk about one life now. So one life is what resulted from that yeah. leap of faith. 12 years ago, you started. Fast forward to today, mm -hmm. multi-site. You got mm -hmm. this staff. You got all these people. You do video teaching. I mean, it's a full-blown operation. Mm -hmm. And I know intimately because I was mm -hmm. there, and, yeah. and I am there. Uh, and so let's talk about that. There's, there's so much with regard to what went into church planting, yeah all of that. But the thing I want to focus on is the one mainstay that has been there mm -hmm. for 12 years, which has been your voice, mm -hmm. right? As the primary communicator. So when you think about shaping a church, mm -hmm. right? From the start, and you're the voice of that church, you're the, you're the kind of one communicating the vision. What were the one or two things that were most important to you to convey yeah. to those people? Well, to convey to the people and, and what I think was most important for me kind of go hand in hand. So I want to maybe address that first. What, what was most important to me, and this is where I was willing as a church planter out of more, if I'm transparent, more out of fear of failure than anything, but to learn from those mentors that I had what not to do. And I remember telling each of them, like, look, you've been doing this for 10 years. You've been doing it for eight years. You've been doing it for six years. I, save me that time. Like, what have, yeah. what have you learned not to do? And as far as it relates to preaching, I very quickly decided and realized I am going to be me when I preach and not anybody else. Mm -hmm. That was at the time that Mark Driscoll was a big voice. Perry Noble was kind of new on the scene. Stephen Furtick was just getting started. He was a few years in. And what I was beginning to notice on the church planting you know, landscape was 
you know, this guy over here might be trying to be a little bit Mark Driscoll. I'm going to try to cuss every once in a while in my sermon and be like him. I'm going to be a little bit Perry Noble and try to tell a funny story. I'm going to be a little bit Stephen Furtick and try to, I'm going to wear, I'm going to use a handheld now instead yeah. of a, you know, I'm going to be a little bit Andy Stanley and I'm going to do it all from a stool, you know, or whatever. And, <laughs> and quickly realize, wait a second, I want to learn from all those guys. But at the end of the day, I want to be me. I, want, sure. I need to be Rodney. God has equipped me for such a time as this to be me. And I am in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm not in Seattle or Atlanta or Charlotte or Anderson, South Carolina. I am in Knoxville, Tennessee, reaching the people that God has sent me to reach with my experience and my voice. I, speaking of voice, I need to be me. So what I decided was I'm going to learn from each of those. So, so I learned from Perry Noble. You and I have talked a lot about this. I just really studied how he told stories. And I think he's yeah. one of the best storytellers. And, and I learned, okay... I was short-circuiting some of my storytelling, and I wasn't painting the full picture. We, we had a lot of conversations sure. about that in, in sermon prep time of, okay, I, I learned that from him. You know, from Andy Stanley, I learned the simple, you know, one point, support everything to that. Um, you know, learned from Mark Driscoll, the, it's okay to be raw and transparent and authentic. Um, from, from Stephen Furtick, learning, okay, it's okay to let, I have a bit of a charismatic background. Don't, don't be afraid of that, of who I am, but, but be me. So the first thing that I learned was, before I even can communicate whatever I think is most important to those people that are going to listen, be me. Don't be afraid to be me um, and, and develop what my voice is going to be and, and own that's what God's created me to be. As far as the most important things to communicate to those people that would shape the church, it's 150 million percent vision. And I almost hate to say that because as soon as I do, most of us, our minds go somewhere. But here's what I mean. And I was actually working with our student ministry leader, or, or I guess we'd call him our student ministry pastor, who, who speaks every Wednesday night. And I've been, share, I've been really working with him on this recently that every message has to be so laced with vision. And what I mean by vision is what is the specific measurable direction that we're going? That it, and it's so crystal clear that you can't, hear me speak at all without hearing it come out. So in the early days for us, it almost became a joke. I was talking so much, almost just a second nature, about the fact that within five miles of the high school we were renting, there were 95,000 unchurched people, and that's why we're here. That was in every message, every welcome, every offering talk, every announcement, every time I met with leaders, every volunteer meeting, we were talking about there's 95,000 unchurched people within five miles of where we sit. That was important to me at the time because we were, thanks to good coaching, really trying to farm our community rather than being a citywide church. A lot of new churches especially try to be the regional church before they've reached their community. And, and so I was wanting to say, look, we're going to reach this community and let it ripple out from there. So, so the number one thing that was most important to me was I wanted that vision to be super duper crystal clear. The second thing for us, which you've also been kind of on the front row to, is I felt very much called that we were, God's call on us was not to reach unchurched people, which kind of, wait a second, you know, and I, and I do think Perry Noble, I was in a coaching network with him and he shared that in one of the first sessions with us 13 years ago was, hey guys, I want to be honest with you. Every church planter says, I'm going to start my church to reach unchurched people, but I got some news for you. Unchurched people don't go to church. <laughs> so why do we think if I rent a high school and have a cool band, the unchurched people are going to flock to me? Right. They're not. Yep. And that wrecked my world. Like, we're going to. Well, guess what I found out very quickly? No, God had uniquely wired us to reach cultural Christians. That was our calling. Yep. Now, you, somebody else might be called to reach you know, the, the urban community. Somebody else might be called to reach you know, truly unchurched people. Those are all going to be different strategies. Ours was to reach cultural Christians. So that big explanation to say this, 
The vision was the number one thing. The second thing was we have been driving home every Sunday almost for 12 years when I'm intentional about it and practice what I preach here that we are talking about the difference between religion and relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to point out that just because you prayed a prayer at Vacation Bible School, just because you got baptized at Grandma's Church, just because you walked the aisle at church camp, does not mean you know Jesus. So we, we, we were talking from the very beginning about the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. And I was talking about, I might know, you know, at the time, I know everything about Barack Obama. I know his address. I know his daughter's name. So I even know his dog's name, Bo. Oh, yep. Yeah. So, but I don't know him. Right. And using those types of things. So you could not come to One Life. My goal was you cannot come to One Life without knowing our vision and knowing that we are going to be about relationship, not religion, about knowing Jesus, not knowing about Jesus. And those were the most important things. But those would not have been communicated if I did not first establish who my voice was going to be, who I'm going to be. I'm going to learn from all these different people and continue to. And and, and honestly, I'd, I hate to go back and look at those sermons from 12 years ago because it's a, it seems different than it was. So it's going to change, yeah. but be who I am to communicate these most important principles. Yeah, and I love, I love that... There's so much there. What I think is, or what comes to mind, is that context matters so much. Mm. So yeah. we're in Knoxville, Tennessee, yes. very cultural Christian. It is not Seattle, mm -hmm. where it's it's very it's not even it's post-Christian, right? Yeah. They never even had Christianity there. So a huge takeaway from that is, and this is something that I kind of discovered when I came to One Life. It just clicked for me that oh my gosh, there is not a one-sized fits all no. missiology yeah. of how to do this yeah. really depends on context. I'm so glad you used the word missiology because that's a, that's a new soapbox that I'm kind of on lately, which is I think that we make conversations that should be about missiology. We unintentionally or intentionally or just out of old habits, we talk about ecclesiology and theology and argue and debate, you know, what, what does the Bible say our ecclesiology should be or our theology should be, when in reality, most of those conversations are really missiology conversations. Yeah. They're really strategy conversations. Yep. And here's how I've tried to communicate this to my staff or church planners over the years is it really means I think if we're going to do a good job leading, we are missionaries first. So what I want to do, and I've, I've used this crazy extreme example, is, is if I were to take this group of people that I'm leading at my church, and we were going to go do this in Baghdad, Iraq, what would we do? Well, we would show up, and we would chill out for a while. We'd get to know the people, we'd get to know the landscape, and we would determine what is the best way to reach these people. Our ecclesiology is not going to change. Our theology is not going to change. But our missiology might look completely different. You know, our, our strategies, our, 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 our ideas to reach them. We're going to maybe wear different clothes. We're going to speak a different language. We might not meet on Sunday mornings or we might meet on Sunday mornings. The service might look completely different. It would force us to reevaluate everything. So why in the heck, Lane, do we not do that here? Yeah. It's crazy not to. Yeah. So what we have done over the years and, and try to do just perpetually is to say, okay, let's be missionaries to Knoxville, Tennessee, and let's drill down even more. Not just Knoxville, Tennessee. There are hundreds of people groups within Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, as you know, as you've gotten to know the city here, um, what is we're in Powell sitting today. We're in the community of Powell, and just three miles down the road is the community of Halls. And if you ask natives, those are not the same city. No. <laughs> They're very different. My daddy went to Halls and played football at Halls. My kid's not going to Powell, you know, kind of thing. So we had to become, you know, we call it exegeting the culture. We all know we talk about exegeting scripture. We exegete the culture to say, okay, now what is going to be the best strategies 
to reach the people that God has called us to reach because all people in Knoxville are not the same. So someone could come and plant a church next door to us reaching a completely different people group and I would say, how can we help you and support you? This is not competition because we're gonna reach who we can reach and not reach who you can reach. Yeah. And and that's so important because that drives, okay, now as I, as I try to make decisions about What's our worship service going to look like? What's our calendar rhythm going to be? What's my preaching topics and calendar and style going to be? I need to let the exegeting of the culture inform that because my ecclesiology and theology is going to be very, um, very orthodox. I mean, it's going to be very conservative, very kind of what you know churches for thousands of years have done. But my missiology and my strategy should be very, very different. Yeah, I think it becomes so clear when you compare it to missions, like yeah. international missions. Right. I mean, it just it makes it so vivid where why would you do it differently? And, yeah. and so I think there's a great challenge to, to everyone listening to really look at their yeah. community and understand it. Yeah. So let's talk about sermon creation and sure. delivery. So uh, I think that a huge part of what makes you just you is your ability to make communicating excellently look easy. Okay. <laughs> and and part of me just hates it, hates yeah. you for that, yeah. uh, but like in a nice way, yeah. you know, because you're able to get in front of a group of people and just and just capture them and really just take over the atmosphere of the room and bring people in. So can you? And I know that's very intentional. Some mm -hmm. of it comes naturally, but you've worked very hard as well. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that you say these are the these are the kind of non-negotiables of my sermon writing and delivery? Okay, well, I think number one, uh, I am a huge, huge, huge fan, believer, almost junkie for Andy Stanley's book, Communicating for Change, the back half. Skip the first half, that's the kind of the novel part. But the idea of preaching one-point sermons and that what most of us preach when we have multiple points are really sermons that should become series. Mm -hmm. And I have really, like that has, I have embraced that, I believe in that, because we need people, we've all heard the statistics that by Monday morning, our folks can't remember 95% of what we said. Sure. Well, the reason for that is if, it's because if my sermon is going to be 12 steps to deal with your anger, well, which one am I supposed to remember? Right. Whereas if I say we're going to do a 12-week series on anger and each week focus on one way to deal with anger, well, now I can percolate on that for an entire week if, if I just have that one idea that then is going to be supported. Now, here's the thing. That oftentimes gets criticized as watering it down or it's, sure. it's, it's, not, it's not meaty enough. But the truth of the matter is that is hard work mm -hmm. because I could fill up a 45-minute sermon finding 12 verses, making 12 points, and bore everybody to death doing that. But to say I'm going to take one idea and I'm going to develop that, I'm going to apply that, I'm going to show biblical theology for that, I'm going to show biblical context for that, that's harder work. And so I think the one point, one idea that gets supported by subpoints, but it's saying, okay, um, we're doing a series now, as you know, we were calling it Triggered, and it's about dealing with this offended culture that we're in. So week one, we're just going to talk about that being offended is a choice. And we're going to take the proverb that says, choose not to be offended, essentially. And we're going to build on that the introduction of this series that says, number one, if you remember nothing else from this series, it's that being offended is a choice. And we're going to talk about that. You choose to be offended every day. You know, if a kid says something, it doesn't offend you. If an adult does, it does. So you're already choosing. And I'm going to show you over the course of the series what God's Word says. You know, then week two, we're going to deal with, you know, how do you deal with being offended? Well, we talked about, you know, being offended is a choice that only time will tell if it was worth it. So we're going to, we're going to really drill down on that. So the, the one 
point is important, and then I'm going to support that with different points. You know, here's what God's Word says about being offended and all that, but if you remember, and I say this all the time, you know, this is one of my little tactics, I'll say, just point it, put it out there, if you remember nothing else, remember this one point. Yeah. And it's amazing how people will be in conversation with me weeks or months later and say, you know that one Sunday that you said that being offended is a choice where only time will tell if it was worth it. Man, that wrecked my world. And, da, 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 da. and so when you make it portable, as Andy Stanley would say, it becomes memorable. So I think the simplified one uh, one point, and then I'm just a big believer in the me, we, God, you, we outline, as you know, which yep. is I'm going to start with the me and I'm going to kind of build some credibility and in, in, with you because I'm going to share about myself. Then we're going to all relate to it before I ever get to the God portion. I want you nodding your head. Yep. I want you agreeing with this concept because all truth is God truth. And then I'm going to show you that this wasn't my idea. This was God's. And, and you know that what's important to me is that in that introduction of the first eight or, eight or 10 minutes where I'm going to share an, a personal experience, and then I'm going to show you how we've all experienced this, I want you, whether you are in middle school, high school, you're a young married, single, you're an empty nester, you have kids, you don't, everywhere in between, I want to get buy-in from everybody. And that's what makes it so relatable. That's what makes it personal. If somebody goes, wow, okay, He's talking to me. I can understand this. Now I'll show them where, where God fits into this. So uh, I think I've kind of forgotten what your question was, but, but <laughs> no, that's, that's, great. That, that's what I really try to try to focus on in the in the sermon prep side is let's have one point and let's make it relatable to everybody and then show them how this is God. I say this all the time. This is God's word, not Rod's word. I'm I'm in I'm in this journey with you. Yeah. We're in this together. So one of the things that you do in the meet a we so well is you build that tension up front to mm -hmm. where not only are they nodding, but they're they're on the hook. They're yeah. interested. They have to know what's going to happen next. So can you talk yeah. about how you build tension? So, so tension is, and I've got to give credit where it's due here. I have learned that tension is our number one tool that most of us don't use. And and I really had a mentor of mine who who spent you know 12 years ago about two hours helping me on a 30 minute sermon that he had evaluated talking about tension he actually talked about how one of Ronald Reagan's speechwriters told talked to him because he used to be a pastor in California about tension and how they would leverage tension in speech writing because tension is what causes people to lean in and what I mean by that is most of us have been taught to remove tension from our communication. And what I mean is, is we, we read a passage of scripture and, and there's something that causes confusion or something that's hard to believe or something that doesn't make sense or something that I might be skeptical of. And we have been taught that our job is to explain all of that away. Yeah. And what that does is it removes the tension. Right. Well, here's what happens. If I remove all the tension, there's no reason for them to lean in. There's no reason for them to wrestle with it. There's no really no room for the Holy Spirit to do the work that only He can do because I'm telling you what the Holy Spirit wants you to know because I'm going to explain all this away and remove all the tension. And here's what I learned is the Bible is full of tension. I mean, yeah. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, I believe you and we believe you're the son of God, but what is all this? And Jesus creates tension. The rich young ruler, Jesus creates tension. If you're not willing to leave all your stuff, you can't follow me. And he goes away sad. Um, the, the woman at the well, Jesus uses tension. Well, you know, who? what's your husband's name or where's your husband? He knew that would create tension in her. It caused her to lean in and, and wrestle with this principle. So in the intro part, what I want to do is I don't want to relieve the tension. I don't want to say, I'm going to give the problem and answer it and then show you how the Bible does that. I want to build the tension of what do we do? So, yeah. so like the, the sermon I'm, I'm working on right now is about how the gospel is offensive. 
So the first part of that, I'm going to tell, I'm telling a personal story about how when I was a kid, I was offended by something I had never experienced, which was my parents making me sit at the kid table. Then I'm inviting everybody in. We've all experienced that, right? Where we've been offended by something that we've never experienced before. So, uh, you know, you've been there because you, you wanted to apply for that job, but then you realized that you didn't have the qualifications and it offended you. But now that you're longer in your career, it doesn't offend you any longer because you understand it. So kind of get everybody nodding their head and then pose a question. Using questions and sermons is something we should all do more too, to build tension, to say something like, so let me ask you this question then. What do we do when the gospel's offensive? And let that question hang over because now you're getting everybody in the room in the conversation and they're going, well, some people might say, well, I don't think the gospel is offensive or, oh good, I'm glad he's talking about this. Where is he going? Because I've been offended by scripture or... Oh, I don't know. What are you doing? Somebody you know has been offended by scripture. Well, people's minds start to go, well, I'd try to use apologetics or I would just let them believe what they want to believe. But that moment creates tension that says, because what I want to do is let's find out together. Let's invite you in. What does God say about that? So that tension causes them to lean in. And then as I'm going through scripture, let, let the text teach the text. You know, you asked, you, you mentioned, you, know, you make it look easy. And that's something that sometimes our church planners will ask me, and, and I really believe this. I don't mean to minimize the, the, the situation, but the text teaches itself when yeah. you let tension come through. So when I come across a verse that says, um, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him would be saved, there is tension there. Well, what is the tension? Well, why is Jesus saying this? Well, it must be because somebody thought that God sent Jesus to condemn them. Who might that be? There's tension. Yeah. Um, well, why would God not send Jesus to condemn? Isn't there condemnation in the fact that if you don't follow Jesus, then you're condemned? Rodney, that seems like a contradiction. Let that tension linger because it's going to be there. People are, are they're, they're in tension when they hear us speak because they're going, what credibility do you have? I don't know if I believe this. Well, that verse seems to contradict this, or even within this verse, there seems to be a contradiction, or I don't understand it, or is, does this apply to me? Use that tension, acknowledge that tension, because that's going to keep people leaning in. When we remove that tension, well, there's nothing for it. So you think about television shows and movies, it's the tension that causes you to want to wait to the end to see what happens. It's the tension that makes you say, oh, I guess I, guess I better wait for this commercial break to end. We, we need to do the same thing. Let's use tension to keep people involved in the conversation. Yeah, and so much, of, so much of the beauty of that is what's happening in their hearts and minds is really the point, right? Yeah, like you absolutely. want that. So if they're just listening to you and you're giving them the problem and the answer simultaneously, it removes that entire process. It absolutely does. And tension is also a tool that we should use when we use illustrations. Um, you know, I, I use this example with you one time. You know, we can say as an illustration, I was driving through the mountains and, um, and, and they were really big and I was inspired by the, the majesty of God. Or we can say, I was driving through the mountains one day and I, I was blown away at how huge the mountains are. And I thought to myself for a minute, how did God do this? There's tension there. And then, you know, getting people to say, but where is he going with this is tension. And, and as I was driving through the mountains and I saw just the grandeur of the mountains and I'm going to describe the detail, I'm going to tell the story. And I began to wonder to myself, if God could create this, what else could he do? That's tension. You know, or when we're telling a story of, you know, maybe citing a historical reference or something, using the tension of, I think a lot of times what helps is, can you imagine being there? Can you imagine what that must have been like? Or what if that had been us? Would we have responded the same way? It's really, it's really questions. You know, uh, what, what question can I ask that's going to cause them to go, hmm, I've never thought about that. Or yeah, I've wrestled with that too. Or that's got me thinking. And I don't know if I, if I have the answer. 
Tension is everything. It's absolutely everything. Yeah, and let's talk about questions because there's there's the tension building, but then there's also something that we talked about uh, several months ago where you helped me understand that when you ask questions, you're positioning yourself not as this yeah. uh, dispenser of wisdom from on high, but you're it's a dialogue and you're guiding them through the process. Yeah. So can you talk about that? Well, let me tell you why this is important to me is that's what Jesus did. Mm -hmm. uh, a book that really kind of shaped my thinking on this and, and really our discipleship process too of how we teach people to make disciples. It's called Jesus is the Question. And, or Jesus is the answer. I always get that backwards. Just Google that or Amazon that. It's one of the two. But the, the idea, the thesis of this book is that if you really study the New Testament, this author's opinion is Jesus has asked lots of questions and he only directly answers three questions in the entire New Testament. Hmm. But he, and he was asked like 180 something questions. And he only answers three of them. But if you really study his conversations in just the four short books of the gospel, he asks over 300 questions. Yeah. So it's, who do you say that I am? Haven't you read the scriptures? What do you want me to do for you today? What is your name? What Jesus is doing there is giving us, I think, a model, which is exactly what you just said. When I come in hot and heavy for 35 minutes of a sermon telling you, I'm the seminary trained or I'm the more spiritual one, let me tell you, thus saith the Lord, I am positioning myself as the answer man. I am, I am positioning myself as the one that can take the tension away for you and teach you what you need to know. And you'll never be on my level, but, but I'm going to try to get you as close to me as you can. But when I say, hey, listen, I'm in this with you. I'll, I'll, you, you see me do this. I'll, I'll show a scripture um, that we're wrestling with in a sermon. And I'll say, can I be honest with you? I don't understand this. Or I don't even like this. What do you think? That, that's, that's buying equity. That's just being honest and transparent. Yeah. So the question thing is important because now I'm inviting you into the conversation. I often think of it this way. I don't want my sermon to be a monologue. I want it to be a dialogue, even though I'm the only voice for 35 minutes. Yeah. I want you to feel like we've been in a conversation and you can do that. You can 100% do that by saying... Okay, I've introduced this, this idea that um, the gospel is offensive, and then I'm going to pose a question to you, which is, so what do we do when the gospel offends us? What do you do? What should I do if someone I know is offended by the gospel that I believe? Should we, should we argue them with facts? Should we, should we use apologetics? Like, what, do you, what would you do in that situation? Well, when you're doing that, even though you're the only one speaking, they're answering the question. Yeah. They're having the conversation. And so I try to do that all throughout my message, which is either a direct question or I use a lot. Can you imagine this? Imagine what it must have been like in that moment. Imagine if you and I were there. Imagine if you were faced with this dilemma. Imagine what was going on there. Um, that brings people into the conversation. Instead of just receiving, they're now actively involved. And that's what, you, you know you're doing this well when people say, that sermon went by so fast, I couldn't believe yeah. it was 40 minutes. Yeah. And the reason they have that feeling is they were an active part of it and did not even realize it. Right. So. Yeah, that's huge. And when, so when you're asking that question, what would you do? How do we make sense of this? Had you just said, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do, none of those people would have been paying attention at yeah. the same level. Nowhere yeah. near. No. So that, there's, there's a lot of brilliance there. Well, this has been really good. What, as we kind of wrap up, one of the things I, I want to ask you about is how you intentionally develop yeah. other communicators. Because you know, people watching may not know this, but I consider you my communication coach. Mm -hmm. uh, I coach a lot of pastors, both you know, in YouTube, podcasting, one-on-one -on -one clients. And I tell every pastor they need to have a coach. I have a coach. I don't know if you knew that, but you're my yeah, coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get those paychecks every month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I have 
I have benefited, in fact, so much, I'm gonna tell myself a little bit, so much of what I teach at Preaching Donkey comes from our conversation. Uh, yeah. So uh, there's nothing new under the sun, sure. but how do you approach, when you're gonna develop a communicator, what do you look for, and what are the things that you, you try to work on? So the first thing that I think is most important, and I was not comfortable enough with this in our early years, is it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of being willing to go all in and developing your voice and being unapologetic about it. And once you've said, okay, this I'm going all in and this is what we're going to communicate at my church, this is how I'm going to communicate it, mm. then adopt that and that's what you develop other communicators toward. So what I mean is at One Life, as you know, we have said we are going to use the me, we, God, you, we from Communicating for Change by Andy Stanley. We're going to use that as a, as a boilerplate for everything we do because I just think it's so effective. So we're going to use that. Our offering talks are me, we, God, you, we. Our welcomes are me, we, God, you, we. Our volunteer meetings are me, we, God, you, we. Our sermons are me, we, God, you, we. <laughs> Everything. And, and, you know, we've even done, like, we're going to do me, we, God, you, we case studies or drills. Like, okay, so you are talking to somebody about this. I want you to me, we, God, you, we, a 30-second conversation, you know. Yeah. And that's important because, because is that the only way to do sermons? No. Is that the right way to do sermons? No. But is that how I'm doing it and how we are going to do it at my church for this season? Yes. So you came in three, four, five years ago and were, you'd been preaching for years at other churches. You'd written a book on preaching already. And I said, Lane, here's how we preach at One Life. You don't have to do this when you go to other places, but when you preach here, I'm going to ask you to use this model because that's what I'm going to coach you towards. And that's what our consistent voice at our church is going to right. be. So the first thing I would say is you have to identify, you have to nail down, this is how we communicate. This is, this is what I want the voice of my church to be. It's not the right way. It's not the only way. I won't even say it's the best way, but it's our way. And so that goes back to knowing who you are, being confident in who God's called you to be, and going all in. And the other reason that's important is because I can only coach you on what I'm good at, yeah. or, I can, or what, I, I'm, what I try to be good at. Sure. I can only coach you on what I'm trying to do. So if, if I'm trying to develop younger or newer communicators and they're using different styles, different strategies, different outline methods that seminary taught them or their old church used or what their preference is, I won't be as effective of a coach. I mean, I, I, I like to relate it to sports. If, if I'm an offensive coordinator that, that, that is a run-heavy you know, um, offense, but somebody comes in and says, hey, coach me how to run a pass-happy offense, I'm not going to be a very good coach to them. So I'm going to coach you on what my philosophy is and what my strategy is. You don't have to use that outside side of here, but that's what I'm going to coach you towards. So I think that's the first and foremost, most important thing that maybe gets skipped. I skipped it our first few years and I would try to help uh, other people who were preaching and communicating and I just couldn't because they're totally different style, totally different strategies. And then the, the voice was inconsistent. So people would not like it when the guest preacher was there because it wasn't even just a different person. It was a total different look, feel. and all, Not that that's bad, sure, but it, there wasn't consistency in message, consistency in style, consistency in vision. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I really believe this, just go ahead and be okay and understand it's almost harder work to help somebody else preach a sermon than it is to preach your own sermon. Mm -hmm. There are times that, especially with younger communicators, I would spend more time helping them develop a message than I would spend on developing my own. Just be faster if you did it myself. But it's important to go through that process. And here are some of the steps of that process that I think are important. Identify a few key questions that you want that communicator you're developing 
to be able to answer when they sit down with you. So I would always say, okay, I want you to develop this. This is this is the sermon topic, or this is what you're working on, and then we're going to sit down. I want to go over your. You're going to go over your notes with me, and as you know, I would say just kind of don't preach the sermon to me, but talk me through in five minutes your main points. And I want you to be able to tell me number one, what's your bottom line? Number two, the two questions that communicating for change really hits on. So what and now what? If you can't answer those three things, what's the one thing you want people to remember? And the so what is, so what does this mean for me? And now what, what am I supposed to tangibly do today? Then it's not clear enough. That may not be what everybody uses, but identify this is what I want you to be able to answer. Then I think a crucial step is to do it before you do it. Don't practice on the people is something that our friend Dylan says a lot. Sure, yeah. um, don't <laughs> practice on the people. So I don't. I think we are doing a disservice to our people if the first time we preach a sermon is on a Sunday morning behind the pulpit with people in the room. 100%. And because none of us are that good. Yeah. None of us are. So as you know, we developed a culture where I preach my sermon every Wednesday morning to our staff, now the COVID things have changed that a little bit, but even still, I'm still preaching my sermon every Wednesday to somebody. It's getting recorded and I get feedback from that. And you know, I've asked two questions in all of those feedback sessions. Number one, tell me what you are going to take away from this. In other words, what, what, what would you say, Rodney, don't change that? Like that hit home with me. That's what I would take away. If you keep anything, keep that. And then number two is the opposite of that. What wasn't clear? What could be cut to gain better clarity? What 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 do you think didn't really connect with you? And sometimes it hurts your feelings. Sometimes I agree. Sometimes I don't agree. But that makes it so much better even for me. So when I'm developing somebody, I tell them, look, you're going, even if this is for a, a small group thing or, or a, a student ministry thing, I want we're going to go through this prep process. We're going to answer these questions. We're going to flesh this out. And then you're going to preach it to somebody. You're going to communicate it to somebody. Then we're going to get back together again. And let's go through that. Let's let's talk through. As you know, we did that a lot. Let's talk through how. Tell me why you use this illustration. Would there be a better way? These points here seem to kind of distract from the bottom line. How could we rework that? How could we do that? A big thing for me is uh, I'm working with our student ministry guy right now on this. You know, there'll be some things that he'll say, and we all do this. That that's true. Those are true statements. But where in the text did that come from? Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, that's not there. Okay. Well, let me tell you why that's important to me. This is another kind of. Uh, kind of rabbit trail, but the way that we handle the text in our sermons is really teaching people how to read, handle the text on their yeah. own. And that's, that's why so for true. me, dealing with tension, asking the questions, you know, pausing and wrestling with, well, emphasize this word and why do you think it says that? What you're really modeling is when you're at home reading the scriptures on your own, wrestle with this. An example of that is I always highlight the word but. I like literally on the screen that we use highlight the word but, and I even did it today in our pre-record. I said, so um, so we get to this, this verse has a sentence and then it says, but, and I'll stop there and say, you all know in one life, this is important to me. When you are reading the Bible at home and you see the word, but here's what it means. There was one idea and now a counter idea is coming. So that's an easy way for you to learn the scriptures and you're just teaching them how to do that. And, and I want to do that with the people I'm, I'm developing, and I want to teach them those tricks and tools and things. So they're going to preach the sermon. We're going to record it. Then we're going to get back together, and we're going to go through it again. And I'm going to say, okay, tell me. And I like to use lots of questions. That's what a good coach does. How did you feel about it? Why did you use this? What could make this better? How could you build tension here? How did, how did this support your bottom line, or how did this distract from it? So developing communicators means I've got to identify what my, my voice is going to be. I've got to work with them on the front end on kind of helping them answer some of those questions, give them a chance to do it, evaluate it with them, and then give them the opportunities to, yeah. to, to, to sink or swim and then yeah. help, them, help them after that. Well, that's, that's huge. And that's something I talk about a lot at Preaching Donkey is how effective 
that Wednesday morning yeah. staff services that the first time those words are coming out of your mouth should not be at your nine o'clock service. And a lot of pastors joke that it's the dress rehearsal, mm -hmm. which I, I think is a massive disservice to those people. They didn't show up for a dress yeah. rehearsal. They showed up for worship and, and you need to give them the best of what you've got. So yeah. I love that you do that because I think that what happens is a lot of pastors, preachers, communicators, they get to a certain point where they feel like, okay, no longer need to do that anymore. I'm okay. But every sermon is a new animal. And every sermon is a new sequence of thought and transitions and all of this that if you've never heard yourself say it, there's too much room for error. So yeah. I've always appreciated that about you, that you're willing to do that. Even though you're very skilled, you don't have to, but you put that in there and then receive feedback from your staff mm -hmm. as a lead pastor, which is rare. Well, let me tell you why a, a, a kind of covert, kind of ninja-like reason that I think that's important, that that doesn't really get communicated, but it's building a culture in our staff that I think is important. Sure. Which an important part of our staff culture is none of us are inerrant, none of us are perfect, and we all need collaboration to be the best that we can be. That's why there's the five-fold ministries and all that. So before you send that email out to your volunteer team, have somebody else read it to make sure you're, it's clear. And is this communicating what you want to communicate? Before you go into that meeting and communicate what you've got planned, go through it with somebody else. So I want to model that, hey, the seminary trained guy's been preaching every Sunday for 12 years. I'm still willing to learn. I'm still wanting your feedback because a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew kind of idea. Yep. So if I think it's good, but it's still misty for me, I want you to tell me how foggy it was because I want to go back and make it as good as that because I'm not Jesus. Jesus could do that, but I'm not him. So I want your feedback. I want you to, to help me with this. And then the other thing too is, and you're, you're always good at this, and I did it in my earliest days, is I want to go back and listen to myself, which is hard, mm -hmm. but I want to hear... I'm, I'm a fast talker, and, and I've got that's that's my biggest thing that I'm trying to work on is if I want to be an effective communicator, people have got to be able to understand the words coming out of my mouth. So I want to go back and listen. How fast did I communicate? What was my pacing? Did did that transition work that well? And what I think is effective there is I'll let it sit for a day or two and then listen to it. Yeah. And then I want to make my own notes and go, okay, that actually, that was pretty good. Like, I, I can't believe that was me that said that. And then, oh, that was I rough. I agree with me there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree with me there. But then other times it's it's rough. So so I just think it's you're you're doing a disservice to yourself and to, the, to your folks if, if you're not doing something to preach it to an empty room and record it and listen to yourself. But even better, to have somebody give you feedback every week to say, this connected, that didn't. You're going to be so much better off for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Well, this, is, this has been so good, and I can only imagine the, the comments and, and stuff we're going to get from it. So for the people who want to reach out to you sure. or maybe take a look at your sermons or whatever, where can they go? Yeah, just go to onelifenox.com. I'm a terrible emailer, texter, you know that. <laughs> so um, we share an assistant, actually, a virtual assistant. <laughs> right. And so um, so just email pastor at onelifenox.com, and Frankie, who also helps you out, will, um, will, will help us get in touch. I love talking to pastors. I love helping out. So anything that I or we can do, I'd be more than more than happy to do that. Awesome. Thanks so much for yeah, coming glad on Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, like I said, that interview was jam packed with incredible value. So be sure to go to onelifenox.com. Check out what Rodney has to say there. And if you are looking for resources on how to write and create the kind of sermons that we were talking about in the interview today, definitely go grab my free 21 day guide to creating killer sermons. You can pick that up at preachingdonkey.com slash 21 days. And I'll see you next week for another episode of the Preaching Donkey Podcast. Until then, remember, if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through you, and he can speak through me. We'll see you next time.